0: Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics and you can become a member at fans.fm committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee and be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Const YouTube channel. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hi and welcome back to the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhry, your host. And today we are actually talking about Podemos, uh, who is you know a, a left-wing populist party in Spain that really captured the imagination of US campaigners. Uh, I was just telling our panel sort of after 2016 when that first wave of Bernie folks went over into Europe. Uh, but anyway, let, let's dig in. I think there's a lot to, lot to talk about. So this last May 4th, Pablo Iglesias, the secretary general and founder of anti-austerity populace, if this word still means anything, party Podemos in Spain quit politics, stepping down from all of his posts. Previously, he was not just the founder of this party, but a figure of the left, a media personality, uh, and part of the rising anti-austerity movement that had been capturing Spanish imagination. uh, Podemos also caught the imagination of the international left, but after a tough, Electoral showing in the party's stronghold of Madrid, uh, Iglesias, before cutting his famously long hair, said, I will stay committed to this country, but I do not want to block a renovation of leadership. He said, when a person is no longer useful, they have to know when to quit. But that sort of begs the question, what was the utility uh, and is the utility of the Podemos project? How did it change the landscape of Spanish and European politics? And where does it fit into the history of national and international progressive politics? With us to discuss Podemos, our friend of the show, Paolo Jarabato, sociologist and senior lecturer in digital culture and society at King's College London and author of the upcoming The Great Recoil, Politics After Populism and Pandemic. Dr. Christina Flescher fomenaya Reader in social politics and media at Lowborough University, editor in chief of the Social Movement Studies Journal, and author of Democracy Reloaded: Inside Spain's Political Laboratory from 15M to Podemos. And Jorge Rosina, lecturer of political science at the uh, Complutense University of Madrid, which is where Pablo uh, was also a teacher, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and is the it Vice is. Dean of the Faculty of Political Science and Sociology. Mm-hmm. I suppose you all have his picture up in the, uh, in the faculty <laughs> lounge. Uh, but, Christina, let's start with you. So, like I said, most U.S. progressives will not have heard of Podemos until that first wave, uh, but the story begins a bit earlier in 2014 at the founding, and even before that, obviously, with the kind of rise of austerity and anti-austerity in Latin America but I'll let you. Uh, what can you tell us about the origin story and how this space on the Spanish left was unoccupied?
1: Um, the origin story has to start with um, the 15M movement uh, known internationally more as the Indignados movement or the Outrage movement um, that took the squares of the city especially uh, starting in Madrid with a mass uh, camp and that was a movement for real democracy now and the movement was pro-democracy and also anti-austerity. So those were the two twin pillars, if you will, of what they were um, going for. And the movement mobilized millions of Spaniards, transformed public opinion, kicked off the debate about democracy. Um, it was just an absolutely remarkable um, wave of mobilization from about 2011 to 2013. Then we start to see some, a little bit of a dropping off of, of mobilization, and that's when um, Podemos's founders decide that there's a political opportunity that hasn't been uh, channeled or exploited. And the reason I say this is that despite the fact that millions of people were mobilizing and demanding change, neither of the established parties, neither the Socialist Party or the Popular Party, which is a right-wing party, um, had responded in any meaningful way to the demands for democratic reform, greater transparency. They were just Carrying on with austerity politics pretty much as usual. And Podemos saw an opportunity um, to try to take that disenfranchised uh, citizenship, that voter potential, and flip it around. But they were, who, who were they? They were just a couple of media personalities. They were longtime activists. They were um, friends of people who knew each other from the university. They were very plugged into activist networks. And so they knew that they needed the support of the movement to be able to channel the spirit of the movement. So they were kind of capitalizing on the 15M spirit and energy and and the massive influence Mm -hmm. that that movement had. had. Um, And so they did that in very specific and very strategic ways. Um, First of all, by trying to make sure that they were appealing to the political culture Mm -hmm. of the movement and the demands of the movement and presenting themselves as something that was um, synergistic with the movement's principles. Why did they have to do that? Because the movement was an anti-established party movement, and it said politicians do not represent us. We want real democracy now. So Podemos had to say, well, we are going to kind of represent, but we're not really going to represent because we really, you know, so they had to navigate um that movement identity or collective identity and political culture and find a way to convince people that they wouldn't be giving up on their autonomous principles, they wouldn't be giving up on their demands for real democracy now, even if they supported an electoral or representative party. So that's kind of by way of just giving you the background to when they sort of enter onto the scene. There's much more we can say, but... Yeah.
0: No, certainly. I mean, Jorge, how would you say that the traditional center left, I think probably represented by the Socialist Workers Party at that time, like lost the movement as Christina describes them because that is a different thing, especially American politics, people recognize that. Mm.
2: Yeah, well, because in, in Spain we, we have uh, PSOE, that is the typical and classical social-democrat uh, European party. The problem is that in the last decades, uh, the social-democratic ideology, uh, especially in Europe, has been losing uh, its influence, and it uh, doesn't answer the the, prob- the problems, for example, the, the crisis that we, we had in 2011, because... Uh, people, especially my generation uh, uh, felt the crisis as a kind of uh, scam, fraud, you know? So they need another kind of response and I think that, as uh, Cristina said, Podemos was really strategic to uh, channel uh, the social movements and the the social energy that uh, 15M had. Um, I think that. The problem is, uh, what was the kind of answer that after a while Podemos has given? Because uh, if you analyze uh, now, currently, uh, we have a problem. Maybe it's not an exclusive problem in Spain, it's a general problem, especially in the south of Europe. uh, Because if you think, uh, seven years ago, we we had a kind of left wave. And now we are living a counter wave with a far right political parties who are reframing the consequences of the crisis. And this is uh, worrying because now, for example, in Portugal, we, we have uh, Chega with uh, Andre Ventura. In Italy, we have, uh, of course, Lega Norte, but also we have uh, Fratelli with uh, Meloni um, in of course, in France, we, we have Le Pen that is, uh, inspired uh, all these parties in, in some sense. And in Spain, we have Vox. And now, uh, even in the uh, electoral results, Vox has won more uh, successful results than Podemos. Uh, so, this is worrying. And I think that we have to reflect about the kind of answers than leftist movements gave to people because uh, Something uh, was wrong. I don't know yeah. what uh, I think that uh, is not a clear answer and we have to reflect But what is sure is that okay uh, Social Democrat Democrat uh, Don't doesn't have the response doesn't have the answer but neither these new social movements or new parties that uh, were created in two, around 2014, you know?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And Paolo, I wanna ask you about that moment in 2014 and expand on what Jorge's saying on a bit. You know, This is a moment where we have Syriza in Greece, uh, where we have the five-star movement really cons- like winning, starting to win elections and, and, and show themselves to be a force. I mean, how much do you think this is part of a European moment Uh, and how much is this uh, an indigenous Spanish uh, uh, push? That's a big question, but, you know, I think you can can (laughs) help us out.
3: I think it's partly both things, in in the sense that there was this sense of a purple wave, uh, paralleling the pink wave in Latin America. So there was the time in which the generation of 2011, the indignados in Spain, and the agonactismeni, the indignados in Greece, And and people in other countries were really looking with a lot of hope uh, to this left renewal. And then, shortly after, in 2015, obviously Jeremy Corbyn becomes the leader of the Labour Party. So there was really this big sense of uh, renewal, of possibility of doing something, of changing something. But it's also something that is really uh, specific to Spain and to the miracle of the Indignados, which is a movement that has... No equals in terms of its breadth, its strength, its opera support. I mean, it's more than Occupy Wall Street, right? I mean, imagine Occupy Wall Street redoubled or uh, uh, in much greater form. So, what happened there was a movement that, that at some point 70% support of the population. It had a huge popular sympathy and a level of territorial capillarity, which was huge, even in the kind of most remote uh, pueblo of Castilla, Uh, you could find a small assembly, perhaps three people, right? But it was really a movement that was rooted everywhere. And Podemos precisely tries to draw lessons from this movement. And the fundamental lesson is, how comes that so many people are angry with neoliberalism, with austerity, with uh, the present model of capitalism, and the left that has been voicing this critique for such a long time only gets few percentage points in the elections, right? So it demonstrated that movement both was both a vindication of the uh, criticism of you neoliberalism, know, austerity that the left alone conducted, and a demonstration of its irrelevance, mm. and therefore it was calling for something different that would overcome the reasons why the radical left, while having the right analysis, was not able to translate that into uh, electoral consensus.
0: Something different is great until you put pen to paper, of course. Christina, can you, can you tell us sort of what the actual party program that emerges as they become a real party crystallizes into?
1: Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll Let me ask, answer a slightly different question because my brain is tracking back to this origin story and I'm picking up on what um, Paulo was saying. I think what's really important for people to understand is we are now talking about this in terms of left and in terms of right. Mm-hmm. But what 15M managed to do, and it did again this very strategically, was to frame the movement as a movement of citizens, not as a movement of leftist activists or progressives. So that seventy percent is so remarkable because the the historical cleavages between left and right in Spain are absolutely deeply rooted and they go back decades and decades and decades. So just to, yeah. to, to be its able a fresh to and actually,
0: painful history. Yeah.
1: Yes, and to be able to actually join—I mean, if you say seventy percent, that means that voters of the Popular Party were supporting. The demands of the movement. Now, think how remarkable that is, especially if you think about the United States right now and the level of polarization. Imagine right now that I could say, well, there's a movement that mobilizes, you know, 70 percent of people, including all across the board from Democrats to Republicans. That's remarkable. So that initial stance of we aren't on the left, we aren't on the right, is very much what the Greens did in Germany when they came out. You know, we're neither on the left or the right, we're out in front. We're trying to do something different. We're trying to answer global problems, global challenges in a different way. That's what the Mm. Greens said. And Podemos came out saying, you know, we're different. We're like 15M. We're trying to to solve um, citizens' welfare. We want to take care of our people. We want to reclaim the nation for its citizens and that is really just um, a continuation of a narrative that the 15m movement itself developed very powerfully to say we want to call, we want to reclaim democratic institutions for the citizens and in my work that's what i refer to as the democratic turn so it's when these autonomous movements really start to rethink the relationship with the state with institutions and with democracy in a much more explicit and outward-facing way than they had up until then. So Podemos had to present itself as a citizen. It didn't present itself as a party initially. It said it was a citizen's initiative. And only if the people agreed, um, and, and a sufficient number of people expressed their approval, would they continue down this line of sort of trying to create some kind of electoral initiative, and they kept it all very vague. And so, in the beginning, they really tried to not be very programmatic. And this is why I'm giving you all this background to your answer, because the minute you're programmatic, you start you start blocking people out. If you start declaring your position on the environment, on uh, you know rights, women's rights, or whatever the case may be, immediately people start going, "Wait a minute, I agree with that, or I don't agree with that." But if you say it's participatory, then everyone's hopes and dreams and illusions can just be kind of laid at the altar of this new project, right? And that's really what happened. So they said, you know, the 15M movement was organized in assemblies, uh, most, mostly organized in assemblies, which in autonomous politics are horizontal, without leaders, deliberation, participation, collective uh, intelligence, collective action. Mm-hmm. And so Podemos created what they called the circles, the Podemos circles, which were supposed to kind of be the Podemos version of the 15M assemblies. And nobody was really clear what exactly those circles were going to do, how that was going to actually channel into party decision-making. All of that was kind of left nebulous. Um, Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have this really nebulous kind of uh, articulation of the project, but on the other hand, you have Pablo Iglesias as a very highly visible um, media personality, who's recognizable, who's a brilliant orator, absolutely brilliant orator, um, very charismatic, very intelligent, lots of uh, you know loyal supporters and so on in his in his uh, kind of immediate group, right? Um, and so they were playing with both of those things. They were galvanizing the movement support and convincing activists to help support that project and without the activists they wouldn't have gone anywhere because it was like five people and on the other hand really um, mobilizing and, and very strategically using the visibility of Iglesias himself to translate that into um, votes and his media presence because he was constantly on um, you know he was, people noticed very early on that when he was on these political debate shows we call them in Spain which it's like everybody shouts and talks to each other and when he would go on he wouldn't shout he wouldn't do the thing that most people did but he would be so prepared with really compelling arguments and what the news um, realized very quickly was that their audience share was going up significantly when he was on the panel and so then He was able then to get into news channels that wouldn't normally be interested in necessarily having a progressive voice because they were looking for that, that, for once capitalism works for something. They were looking for that audience share. Um, And so that's kind of the scenario, if you will, of when they're coming onto the scene.
0: Jorge, let me ask you, just uh, as they're, again, you know, sort of maturing a bit, uh, they are forming this broader coalition, uh, and there's, you know, Unidos Podemos. Uh, Can you sort of uh, explain that phase of the operation?
2: Uh, Yes, but, uh, well, I I think that I I would like to say uh, before one thing uh, about uh, Podemos and the the tendency that Podemos has had, because I think that uh, it's a general problem everywhere. Uh, first, when you have a, a movement which, uh, that uh, creates a huge expectation, after a while you have a lot of people who are uh, frustrated or you are at the end you are losing the, the support. And I think that this is really clear in the case of Podemos and it's something that happens in general. And the other general tendency everywhere is that um, there is a general problem when you are a a movement and you want to uh, go from the street to the institutions. And I think that this is really problematic, especially in the left spectrum. Um, I think that uh, the problem uh, inside Podemos was uh, that people expect to have a new kind of democratic instrument with circles, more horizontal, making decision process, uh, another kind of politics, you know. But after a while, in this transition from the street to the institutions, Podemos turns to be uh, a classical political party.
0: Ordinary political party.
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. With uh, the typical structure and, uh, for example, uh, with some caesarism, in the, in the structure with Pablo Iglesias because it's true, he's absolutely charismatic, he's a leader uh, but he is also um, a controller. <laughs> so uh, the problem is that uh, people start to see him as a problem and something that is something not new, is something that they, the people had seen before with other political parties. So people start to uh, uh, to lose confidence in, in Podemos, and the other problem was that some, uh, in theory Podemos was and, and Pablo Paolo knows, no? In theory Podemos was a kind of digital party, but the problem is that. Uh, they are not anymore, if you even check uh, its website, it's really poor. <laughs> yeah,
0: now, uh, even at the height, right? They weren't doing, like the Rousseau was engaged with constantly by the Cinque Stelle and there was not an yeah. equivalent for Podemos, right? This was a much it, more head uh, exactly. to paper party. Yeah,
2: that's, that's the point. And they, now they are a kind, of, they have a kind of plebiscitarian style with internal referendum. So this is not really new. People, I think that uh, people were not looking for this, so this is a problem, Um, so let's see now what is happening in the transitional process inside of Podemos because maybe the problem is not just uh, to have a new leader, the problem is how to make this process if this process is more democratic, or this process is just changing one leader for another, because now it's supposed to be uh, Yone Velarra, maybe the, the next uh, leader of Podemos, but every everyone knows that Yone Velarra is really close to Pablo Iglesias and, and Irene Montero. So uh, this is a problem because uh, people, uh, or it seems as is more of the same strategy. So, you know, these, uh a few people are trying to control uh, their own political party. So that's the problem. When you have a, a new instrument, and at the end, this instrument is just a party for a few, you know?
0: And I think it goes back to Cristina's point about mapping left to right versus elites uh, versus citizens is, yeah. you know, perhaps uh, a huge part of the problem. Paulo, I want to ask you a little bit more about what went wrong, but actually just first, Jorge, while, while we have you, and we're talking about can you actually surface some of the other personalities or notable candidates or what are the kinds of folks who Podemos is running and do they in any way seem different, right? Like you know, uh, your Cinque Stella candidates, for instance, mm-hmm. in Italy are all, you know we're often smart technocratic folks who didn't even sort of know what the head of the party was saying or if they would be fired by them the next day. Uh, I don't think it's the same for Podemos, but tell me some of the, some of the characters.
3: I think the political personnel of uh, each party is always an interesting thing to study. And indeed in the case of the Five Star Movement, you would find a lot of technical or scientific personnel, which I think is quite interesting. Actually, despite being considered as ignorant by other parties, they had more degrees than other parties and were kind of whatever, uh, computer experts, uh, biologists, engineers and stuff. Mm. In the case of Podemos, at least the first elections that that they surveyed, because, I mean, let's remember, I think it's something very important for our audience, the Contest is uh, a, a political system in Spain that has been through, I think, a total of five elections in the last seven years. Yeah. I mean, it's the snap election after snap election, which is the greatest symptom of organic crisis of democracy. I mean, when a system n- doesn't manage to form governments, right, is a very basic you kind know, of measure of crisis. But so, say, in the first, at least in the first elections, if you look at uh, the MPs uh, Podemos elected, you would find many people like me, uh, Cristina and Jorge, like many academics, like many political scientists. Mm. Which was quite interesting, actually, I think, because there was a sense there was a new generation of uh, academics that were ready to kind of, in a way, bet on on these, uh, often also kind of risking a bit their their, uh, career Mm -hmm. prospects in the process, which, anyway, were already very slim career prospects for, for the generation, especially in Spain. Then many activists. Um, from the Indignados movement. I mean, people I met in the squares in uh, 2011, and I met them again as MPs uh, <laughs> three years later, four years later, and it was quite amazing because you could really see like, people in their 20s, right? Mm-hmm. People who mm-hmm. didn't yet have a steady job and were projected into an institutional sphere with a lot of energy and a lot of uh, also knowledge from the streets and being able to, to, to convert it into into policies, into institutional action. There were some people drawn from Izquierda Unida. I mean, uh, uh, Iglesias himself, right, initially was connected to that. Partly his candidacy was also, in a way, uh, a protest against the fact that Izquierda Unida would not Mm -hmm. run him as a candidate. Mm -hmm. Other people, such as Sánchez, such as many other kind of uh, um, high and mid-level figures of Podemos were also formed from Izquierda Unida but also precisely because they thought that the Izquierda Unida had inherent limits, was not able to break out of left-identitarianism, right? Speaking to the same 5%, 6% of people who have a, a hammer and sickle flag in their in their bedroom, whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, that is partly... But the interesting thing is that Iglesias also managed to recruit people that you would never think would join a radical left party, for example, a, a former general, right? That was basically the kind of candidate for minister of defense. People even from, from the originally from the right, as first string. Um, so it was able to broaden out a bit, um, but yeah, and also it started questioning how it could attract pensioners' votes, mm-hmm. for example, that always remain kind of out of the picture. But, and, and he tried to do certain things, but he never really managed to completely break out from the image of being the party of youth and the graduates, in a way. I think that there was a limit of the political personnel, but also the kind of uh, electoral appeal, ultimately, of the movement.
0: And so, you know, we, we did, and I think even a lot of our audience will be familiar with the constant failure to form coalition governments, and there was the socialists, uh, and Um Christina, can you walk us through how they were as a coalition partner when all of a sudden it becomes time to sort of not be the kids but be kind of the mature grown-up whatever whatever it is. Uh, how did that shake out?
1: Do you mean in the in the joining the national government?
0: Yeah, during the, the
1: government yeah. with the socialist party.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean that that whole process was extremely fraught and difficult and resulted in them not uh, the government not coming into office with as many seats as it would have if Sanchez and, uh, and Iglesias had been able to reach an agreement in the first the first time they were called to uh, form a government. So um, they would have been in a much stronger position to do that. And I think that was an extremely damaging moment. I mean, there's a couple damaging moments for Podemos, I think. For me, personally, my analysis is that the the... Biggest mistake Podemos ever made was joining as a coalition with Izquierda Unida. I think that the minute that they did that, they lost any ability to tell Spanish people that they were doing something new, that they weren't about old left and right. Izquierda Unida has been around for ages. It's an old left party, even if it has a young and charismatic leader. It's been, you know, it had corruption scandals with the Tarjetas Mm -hmm. Black scandal, which was a a whistleblowing scandal about... um, political corruption of uh, political leaders and trade union leaders. So that moment for me, and I know that Iglesias held out for a long time against it. And what's really, really interesting is if you look at the results of Podemos, since that moment, their results have gone worse and worse and worse every election. And they have never managed, even with, uh, to surpass, you know, they've never managed to have a greater sum than the individual parts. So the most they've managed to do is to take the the vote that would have had on its own and their vote on its own and put them together. But they've never managed to do more than that. So that's kind of by way of saying that there's been a real um, decline in support and electoral support for a lot of reasons we can talk about Um, going into this um, first round in April of 2019 when they were supposed to be forming a government with PSOE. And there, I think there was a lot of issues there where um, Pedro Sánchez didn't want another charismatic leader in his government. He didn't want to be overshadowed by Iglesias, and I think that that's always been an issue, um, um, this sort of alpha male you know, mm-hmm. uh, competition. Um, and so he said some very nasty things about Podemos. Podemos on their part was very much kind of um, taking the line like saying, we have red lines which we will not cross, and we our purpose is to change uh, Spanish society and politics, and not to become a member of government at any cost. So they were thinking that that was going to be, um, you know, boost their legitimacy in the eyes of the electorate. But what ended up happening is that people were so annoyed at having to go for another elect, another round of elections, yeah. that in fact both parties lost support and credibility, and what we end up having is an absolute massive boost in extreme right party representation in that election and a drop um, in seats for uh, Podemos from 42 that they had in in the first uh, election of 2019 down to 35. So, you know, we've gone from... And to you, this is quite
0: simply that the dissatisfied and the disaffected have a new home, a new place to go to, which is the right.
1: Well, I mean, it's not that it's not that simple, right, because that is coming—we have to understand that there's a shift in, in the media ecology, even from the time that Podemos is created in 2014 to these elections in mm-hmm. 2019. We're seeing all across Europe, all across the world, the absolute um, damage that information disorders are doing to democracy, the way that the extreme right has very effectively and strategically weaponized uh, information disorders. So that's having effects on, you know, progressive candidates and progressive parties all over the place. But in Spain, there's two things that Podemos has had to really deal with, which no other party has had to deal with. Um, The first is the relentless onslaught of right-wing media against the party and against the figure of Iglesias, like just constant. And they bring spurious court cases. They're just constantly throwing, you know, doing anything. So that's one uh, huge challenge to try to overcome in a world where media is like shaping people's Mm. opinions all the time. But the other thing is that because all the other established parties and even new parties saw Podemos as their primary threat, their whole um, kind of their party programs really in these elections were reduced to one thing: not Podemos. Like they wouldn't even bother um trying to present any kind of a program it was just don't whatever you do don't vote for Podemos so in that kind of a context it was you know that i think also we have to take into consideration that that is going to have an impact on on your voting <laughs> on your votes but there yeah. are also things that were happening internally that um, that affected those votes as well but so by way of answering your actual question by the time they come into the The actual government, I think that both sides have learned their lesson that they can't mess about anymore. They're terrified of what they're seeing, Fox's results, and they get down to trying to actually um, support each other and and, and act like a coalition government is supposed to act. Internally, there's lots of disputes, but you say, the cara la galeria, like facing out to the public. Even though there's there are spats and things that go back and forth, they also try to express unity and being a serious partner. And I think uh, they had a really strong influence on, for example, ensuring that the response to the COVID crisis was handled completely differently than it was than the response to the global financial crisis of 2008. So I think we can say that they really did have a significant impact on Spanish citizens' well-being. And I think they still are having that impact, and certainly, um, yeah. They, I mean, even just their role in in raising the minimum wage, for example, which affects millions of people's livelihoods. So, I think they have. Uh, I think they've done well. Personally, I think they've done well in, in in their government, in the government, in their government roles. So,
0: hey, even as they're in the in this government and are providing things, um, they're also you know just face this very tough election. I mean, what, what do you see as the new landscape and Podemos is where they fit in it based especially on that last result? I know that there's Mas Madrid, uh, kind of mm-hmm. a liberal party on the rise. Maybe you yeah. can uh, talk a little bit about them because that might be a new mm-hmm. flavor of what's to come.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's really interesting because now I think that especially the left spectrum, is uh, in offer, <laughs> so uh, different political parties are trying to keep the attention of undecided voters. Uh, I think that is really interesting because we have uh, two alternatives at this moment. One is Podemos, but Podemos is really complex, as we can see, especially because, uh, as we discussed before, Joan Velarra probably would be the next leader, but the candidate probably will be Yolanda, uh, uh, Yolanda Díaz, that she is the current labor minister, and she's really popular, she's really competent, you know. Uh, even I think that in the current government, it's a government uh, in which you don't find a specific, a, a really um, charismatic people. And I think that Yolanda Díaz is the most charismatic member of the current government of the current government you know so I think that uh, she's really interesting uh, politician and let's see what happened with her because she's not member of Podemos she's member of the Communist Party so it's really interesting what is happening in this kind of relationship between Diaz and Jone Belarra Podemos the bureaucracy of the political party and Yolanda Diaz and her charismatic uh, uh, character. So this is one. And the other alternative is Mas Madrid. In the last uh, elections in Madrid, Mas Madrid, that is uh, uh, its leader is Inigo Rejon, former member of Podemos. Uh, and uh, he was a really close friend of, uh, he was a really close friend of Pablo Iglesias, uh, but they split up, (laughs) and now uh, uh, it's a kind of revenge. Uh, Errejón has created this political party that is, as you said, more liberal, more more centrist. I think that is a more comfortable ally for Psoe because it's closer in ideological terms. I think that Mass Madrid is looking for the green uh, discourse in the Spanish politics. Uh, it's, the, it's true that uh, in, in the last decades in Spain, uh, there has been different um, attempts to create a Green Party, but it didn't work. But now we have. A new contest with Greta Thunberg. Maybe the the Greens in Germany uh, win the elections. Uh, people are more sensible about uh, is, is, uh, the environment. You know. So I think that Erjan is a really is a, a creating a really clever strategy because he's mixing this discourse with some progressive uh, items and he is uh, creating a communication strategy uh, for young people with Twitch, uh, with memes, with you know, different uh, and funny language and I think that uh, this is an interesting competition because I think that Yolanda Díaz will be more leftist but Errejón will be more a catch-all party, <laughs> and I think that is interesting because, in general, when you are a catch-all party uh, and the society uh, don't uh, doesn't have a really ideological preference, maybe you you win. But uh, let's see what happens. Let's see uh, how will be the the pandemic consequences in a couple of years when the elections. Uh, in theory, elections will take place, in theory, because you never know in politics, maybe the the next month, and and as Paulo uh, said before, uh, we have had a lot of elections in the last seven
0: years, Uh, we love elections, uh, so (laughs) (laughs) let's see. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like Texas. I mean, I often say in America, we're really good at suppressing the vote and one of the most effective ways is to keep having elections, not to not have them. It's just you keep having them relentlessly. Um, I'm going to let you have the last word, Paolo, but, uh, but I do want to ask, you know, what Jorge's describing is uh, sort of the recipe for the original problem in a way though, right? Which was that the center left as sort of a coalition of the young and cosmopolitan elites uh, you know, working and, and is losing working class disaffected uh, families and, and traditional left voters. Um, uh, if Mas Madrid is the new model, is that opening it up for right-wing expansion or for uh, revitalized Podemos or, 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 you know, take out the crystal ball. Sorry to make you do that.
3: I think that, I mean, I, I sympathize a lot with strategy and the left populist strategy, and, and in that sense, I was agreeing with Cristina's assertion that the biggest mistake Podemos did was align itself with Sierra which which mm. produced excellent political personnel. I mean, it does not deny that. People like Alberto Garzon and Yolanda Diaz are people who are really good at yeah. what they do, technically, they have uh, morally uh, indisputable, uh, they are reassuring. But they're lucky. that something, I don't know, that kind of indefinite quality, which allows them to create a sentimental connection with the people. Right? They look too, too much like functionaries of, of a bygone era. Right? And like it or not, these days people like to love or identify themselves with a the celebrity politician. Right? Like it or not, it's a bit what, what the game of politics is these days. And this type of personnel doesn't really manage it. So while I kind of sympathize with a left populist uh, strategy proposed by Arrejón, we know that Mass Pais in the last elections, uh, where it uh, surprisingly ran at the last minute, it didn't do well. It just got kind of 3%, if I remember correctly, in the vote. And it was very concentrated in big cities, right? In particular, Madrid. 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 America, Barcelona. And so the risk there... Is that it's uh, more of a kind of middle class, urban middle class party with interesting platforms, but not able to do what is decisive now to defeat the right? That is, recuperate working class votes, recuperate manual workers' votes, right? Which is what Podemos managed to do a little bit at the beginning because it had, on the one hand, a kind of middle class, young middle-class vote, on the other hand, a kind of precarious working-class vote, and it ended up losing that. And uh, um, the PSOE still has some union vote, but the PSOE has become itself a middle-class party, in the sense that it's like the old working-class that has gotten a bit better now as homes, and because it has a little home, sometimes thinks it is like the middle-class. You could see that on the uh, controversy on the rent controls, which was signed by PSOE and Podemos uh, when they were negotiating government, and ultimately PSOE betrayed from that, which is a perfect reflection of the fact that the PSOE now represents uh, also many voters who uh, just want to defend their property, right? I mean, uh, whatever that is for how small the property may be, right? This is a general tendency in, in European societies, right? Especially older voters with property start thinking uh, like the right does, right? Yeah. So that is really a, a tough situation. I mean, how, how you construct a project and also a green project that actually speaks to workers, because mm-hmm. also environmental discourse needs to, to change. I mean, environmental discourse needs to be framed in terms of jobs, mm-hmm. well-paid manual jobs in regionally depre- in uh, depressed regions right? Because that's really the winning card of the Green New Deal. The winning card of the Green New Deal is not only that it's going to do things about climate change, but is that it is going to offer jobs that by their the nature
0: development. Yeah, the red are green.
3: very dispersed and are well paid. So I think that one would need to have that as an ingredient for a winning proposal after all that has happened.
0: Uh, I would agree. I think we probably all would agree. You know, everybody sort of uh, especially in the pandemic, which we touched on, you know, sort of briefly, I always say there's no libertarians in a pandemic the way that there's no uh, atheists in a foxhole. Uh, everything's kind of gotten whacked over that direction. It's just nobody trusts anybody to deliver social democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a sort of uh, a communications and policy failure of the center left globally. And that's why we have shows like this to talk about it. But thank you so much for coming on, Cristina, Jorge, Paulo. Uh, and hopefully you can come it's on back sure. soon and yeah. as we get closer to the elections, we can see what's shaking out.
1: For
2: sure. Sure. Thanks, Thanks for, for the so. invitation.
0: Vale de de Comitato. Committee, we young way, submittee,
3: we committee.